I'm convinced one of the reasons that Europe is so unchurched at this point is because Europe originally was a churched area. It was an area with strong academics. Western intellectualism had its seat there. And what happened is the, 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 the academics whittled away the faith. They made it where it wasn't an academically viable organism. And it didn't happen overnight. It happened over generations. But it happened. And I tell you that because I think the same thing is happening in our country. In a number of ways, the academic institutions are seeking to distance faith from honest education and honest intellectualism. They're saying, you you can't really believe in the Bible. It is stunning to me how many educated people I meet who are flabbergasted to find out that I believe the Bible is God's revelation to man. Not just a collection of nice stories. Not just an inspiration of how to live. But I really do believe it. And I meet these people in various venues where they can't just dismiss me and say, um, you know, bless his heart, he's an idiot. Because generally I'm beating them in the courtroom. So if I'm an idiot, what does that make them? (laughs) But the church itself, the church rests on Jesus Christ. Now we never want to confuse that with anything else. The church rests on Jesus Christ. On Christ the solid rock. Not only do we stand individually, but do we stand as a body. We are the bride of Christ. Having said that, we know who Jesus is and we know what Jesus did because God has secured it for us in a revelation we call the Bible. Now, most people who are in here believe in the Bible or you wouldn't be spending an extra hour of your Sunday morning When you could be out doing all sorts of things on a beautiful, crisp fall morning. That makes me a bit hesitant to teach the kind of class I'm going to teach this morning. Because I don't want to simply give you something that's intellectual. You've invested a lot of your time and energy to be here. But I don't want to leave this class untaught. Which is why, even though I'd put it in the written material, I've decided to dedicate a class to it. Here's the reason why. There are people who come in who start nibbling away at the Bible. And they nibble away at the integrity of the Bible. And when they do that, they are nibbling away at the integrity of our faith in Jesus Christ. And the church is built on Jesus. But if you strip the Bible... Of its revelation quality. Then you may and I may still believe in Jesus. But the next generation won't. Because they'll say. But you know who believes in the Bible. And you can see that happen historically in Europe. In the 1800's and in the 1900's. 
And the battle for the Bible in academic Europe was by and large lost. That same battle for the Bible over the last 50 years has seen itself lost in many institutions of higher learning in America. And so you've got a very difficult situation. And we get a, a, a snapshot of it in Matthew. So I really would like to deal with it because it's especially part of understanding Matthew as its Hebrew gospel. So there are two really big questions I'd like us to address this morning. The first question is, when was Matthew written? And the second question is, who wrote Matthew? Two different questions that are related. And you might say, well, shouldn't we ask first who wrote it? No, actually, when it was written is a driving answer to who wrote it. You see, there are these people who want to chisel away at the Bible. By the way, I got carried away with my writing pencils on this PowerPoint. So if you're going to laugh and mock this PowerPoint, I've already done that as I went through it myself. So don't feel like you're hurting my feelings, okay? They chisel away at the Bible. And I will readily admit, I've chosen some Stone Age type Neanderthal to do it. Because frankly, I'm not impressed with all of the scholarship that's behind this. I'm not impressed at scholarship that claims to, to, to uh, uh, minimize those of faith... As being simply non-scholastic. Now, if you want to go to an institution of, of, of higher learning that's skeptical and cynical about the Bible. To study the Bible. This lesson is not going to countervail a three-year degree, graduate degree, that one of these institutions will offer you. Where they continue to whittle away. This is a 40-minute lesson. But it does give those of us who aren't going to these institutions of higher learning a good basic understanding of what's at play. And if through the wonders of the internet someone at an institution of higher learning happens upon this and their faith is in a troublesome spot, I would gladly, gladly email and converse with those people because what's at play here is extremely important. So the chiselers, the chiselers will tell you that Matthew was written somewhere between 70 and 125 A.D. Now figure that Jesus died around 30 A.D. That means the chiselers are going, and by chiselers, that's just what I'm calling people who are chiseling away at the Bible. I almost called them nibblers, but I decided I couldn't draw a nibbler. I could draw a chiseler. So it became a chiseler. Now, the chiselers will tell you it's between 70 and 125. If you think about it, that means that the Gospel of Matthew, according to the chiselers, was written over 40 years after Jesus died, and perhaps as many as almost 100 years after Jesus died. At which point the chiselers will tell you there's no way Matthew wrote it. 
And at which point the chiselers will tell you, whoever wrote it is just melding together this, that, and the other from traditions, maybe cobbling together from other uh, writings and, and putting together something that ultimately the church voted into being as a legitimate gospel. And so this really eats away at the Bible. So I want to start with that. When was Matthew written? And I want to analyze it. And if I had a cold home run hit on this, where I could say, here it is, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, case closed, poop, done. Then I would be not fair to you intellectually. Because if such existed, this would not be an issue. So by definition, we're looking at something where you don't have 100% certainty, you're weighing evidence. Now many of you have been praying for us for the last two weeks because I was in trial in Lubbock. I want to thank you for those prayers. God honored those prayers. Justice was done. Uh, I truly believe in my heart justice was done. And I'm so thankful. But it, one of the scenes that Bob and I had there is you know, we were dealing with things that weren't fuzzy. Ours was black and white. There was a, 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 a safety man for the defendant, a, an expert safety man for the company. And one of his responsibilities was to investigate the incident that injured our man. So I was challenging him on cross-examination. And I said to him, I said, you didn't really investigate this, did you? He said, yes, I did. I said, come on, you didn't talk to the witnesses. He says, yes, I did. I said, well, we've asked them and they swore under oath you didn't talk to them. He said, hmm. I said, where are your notes? Well, I didn't make any. You didn't make any notes? No, I didn't. I said, did you do any measurements? He said, I didn't need to do measurements. I said, why didn't you need to do measurements? He said, because I've been doing this 30 years and I can eyeball it. I said, how tall is the ceiling? He looked up and said, 20, 25 feet. I said, no, it's 12 foot 6 inches and pulled the tape measure out. Now that's black and white. This fella's eyes aren't really good at guessing measurements. We were able to show that pretty clearly. He didn't take photographs. He didn't do a lot of things. He did nothing. But for him to sit there and say, oh, I can measure. I can always measure. I don't need a ruler. How tall is the ceiling? 20, 25 feet? No, it's 12 foot 6 inches. Well, son of a gun. (laughs) Those are black and white measurements. We don't have black and white measurements here. We have arguments and we have issues. But I want to set them before you. Because I think they're very significant. Here's what the chiseler will say. The chiseler will refer to the story in Matthew. Where Matthew says, if your brother sins against you, go to him. And Jesus says, go to him. And if he won't change his mind, go back to him with a couple more. And if he won't change his mind, then take the church with you. Matthew 18, 15 says, if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then in essence, disfellowship him. Have nothing to do with him. Treat him, Matthew says, like a Gentile or a tax collector, which I'm sure thrilled Matthew to write in there. 
Now, the chiselers will tell you, how could Jesus be speaking about the church in such a structured way? The church isn't established until after he's dead and resurrected and ascended, if you follow the biblical narrative. So how does Jesus say, take, tell it to the church as if there's this institutional structure that can do something about it? And the chiselers will tell you this is a sure indication that this gospel had to have been written after the church was not only established, but it had been established long enough to become institutionalized so that they had rules and, and ways that the church could intervene in problems among its members. And this held, held sway with a number of significant scholars in the late 18 and early 1900s was one of the major reasons given. For dating this late, Matthew late. The problem is, 1947, oh, 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 wait, wait, I can't tell you that yet. Let me tell you one more Chisler argument. If you read Matthew 22, 1 through 14, it's the story about a king who's got a wedding for his son. And the invited guests don't come to the wedding. So, the king sends people and tells the invited guests, Hey, the wedding party's about to begin. Come on. And instead of coming, the invited guests kill the messengers. And Jesus says, What do you think the king's going to do? The king's going to send in his army, and he's going to kill those people, and he's going to burn their city, and then he'll invite others. To the wedding. Here's the passage. The king was angry and he sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, the chiselers will tell you that that had to have been written after the fall of Jerusalem. Because what Jesus is saying there or what Matthew or whoever wrote it is saying through Jesus, is basically nanner nanner on the Jews. See, you didn't accept Jesus, and that's why the temple was destroyed, and that's why the, the king of Rome, the emperor, the Caesar, came in and wiped out Jerusalem and went to Masada and did all of these things. And if that didn't happen in 70, if it wasn't the 70 events, it might even been the 125 second rebellion. So, those are the arguments that the chiselers use for late-dating Matthew. You with me? Okay. So, what are the problems with this? Let's look at them together. Let's first look at the two issues of the chiselers, and then let's look at some other issues as well. On the issue of the church... The chiselers really came into trouble. I told you that was a view very popular in the last half of the 1800s and the first half of the 1900s. Its popularity has diminished since then. It's not so popular today. Most scholars will say, oops, we stubbed our toe on that one. Why? Because in 1947 they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were a product of a community... In Qumran, down by the Dead Sea. And this was a community of Jews. 
that not only were banded together as a community, but they had their own community rules. They had the rule of discipline. They had any number of different rules that applied to the community. It was a developed, structured community that existed before Jesus. Certainly was existing at the time of Jesus. And to say that a Jew could not be talking about a structured community and how a structured community would work together because that just didn't happen has been shown to be false. And then once the scholars started looking at it and this argument was made after the discovery of those scrolls, then all of a sudden, and by the way, those scrolls, the rule of discipline, I mean, it's like really incredibly complicated far beyond what jesus said it's if you do this against your brother then for six months you're in time out and and then that was changed and they changed it no no that, that that's now a 12 month time out i mean they had all sorts of very elaborate rules so it was after this that the scholars started looking at it and saying you know that never was that good of an argument anyway because Brother Paul's writing in the 50s. And in the 50s, he has no trouble telling the Corinthians to disfellowship people if they won't get their act together. You can't say this is a reason it's written after 70 AD because it takes that long for the church to develop. Paul himself shows a developed church doing what Jesus instructed by 50 AD. 20 years after the death of Jesus. So the church clearly not only had the structure to do it before 70 A.D., but I'll go a step further and say it seems they were already following the blueprint of Jesus. Because those were Jesus' instructions. Now, did Jesus use the word church? Ecclesia? I don't think so. That's a Greek word. Kaleo means to call. Ek means out. Ek, kaleo, ecclesia. Church means to call out. Those who are called out. Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic most likely. And he would have used an Aramaic term that referenced the group of you. The band of you. The fellowship. And when Matthew is putting that into Greek or whoever wrote Matthew, we haven't gotten there yet then they would have put it into the terminology, understanding what Jesus meant, that band was at this time called the church. So that's the proper way to translate what Jesus said. As for the idea that the parable talks about, uh, had to have been written, Jesus in the king parable where the king's going to kill the murderers and burn their city, Supposedly had to be written after 70 A.D. When the the Jews were wiped out of of Jerusalem. And the, the temple was sacked and burned. The problem with that is. If you go to the Jewish historian. From the time period the Chislers say this was written. Flavius Josephus. Who had been a commander for Israel. During that war. Was captured by the Romans went to the Roman side at that point and wrote a history of the Jews. In the history of the Jews, he relates what, the, what happened. And in the initial invasion, the city was not burned. 
And the temple, while being burned, was burned because of something the Jews did. It wasn't burned by the Romans. So if someone's writing post-70, after these events happened, they sure are pretty sloppy with it. You'd think they'd get it right. Unless, perhaps, Jesus was truly giving a parable that actually makes 100% sense. Because that is what would happen. If you had a king who had a wedding and the children and the invitees did not come and when some messenger was sent and said, come on invitees, I can guarantee you, if the invitees killed the king's messengers, the king would get retribution on them. That's not rocket science, that's logic. That is a natural story for Jesus to tell to illustrate his point. It would not have seemed far-fetched to anyone. It would have seemed very normal. What else? The temple tax. The temple tax. Look at the temple tax for a minute. This story is related to Matthew 17, 24 through 27. The temple collected a two drachma tax on all good Jews. And it went into temple maintenance and temple repair. You're a good Jew, doesn't matter if you live in Galilee. You pay your drachmas, you pay your taxes, goes back to the temple in Jerusalem, and it keeps the chief priest fat and happy. It keeps everything in good repair. Now Jesus is asked in Matthew 17... Actually, it's not Jesus. Peter is asked, does your teacher not pay the tax? Doesn't your teacher support the temple? They're looking to get Jesus in trouble. The response was, yes, he does. And then Jesus pulls Peter aside and says, hey, do you think uh, 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 you should do this? I mean, do, do, do I have an obligation to pay the tax? And Peter's answer is no. And he says, you're right. But we don't want to cause offense, so we're going to pay it anyway. Go down, grab a fish, open the fish's mouth. That fish had something shiny in its mouth. And with that, the tax was paid. Now, think about this for a moment. That story only makes sense if the temple's still there. Why tell that story if the temple's destroyed? The temple's destroyed in 70 A.D. Why teach the church? Why relate a story of Jesus? Why tell anyone, hey, not to cause offense, Jews need to continue to pay the temple tax? That only makes sense if the temple's still standing. Now, there's a, a, a Catholic scholar who's a good scholar who's got a tremendous book on Matthew that's got a lot of wonderful things, but he is a late-date Matthew guy, and he's really hard-pressed to push this story. And he says, yes, what happened after the temple was destroyed, and this is historically right, the Romans then started collecting that tax. So this is Jesus saying, as a Jew, we'll still pay the tax to Rome, even though it's going to pagan temples? That's not Matthew's point. Matthew would have a hard stretch to say that. You don't get that in it. But that alone is a good indicator that Matthew's written before the temple's destroyed in 70 A.D. 
What else? Read Matthew 24 and 25. Matthew 24 and 25 are prophetic chapters where Jesus is talking about two things. He's talking about the fall of Israel and Jerusalem, but he's also talking about the end of the world. And in very Old Testament fashion, it weaves these prophecies in and out. They're very, very challenging to understand. If this was written after the fall of Jerusalem by someone who was pretending to have written it earlier, don't you know they would have had the most clear prophetic words possible? So that people would without any doubt say, oh, that Jesus, yes, look at that. He predicted that dead on. Instead of having something that's so foggy and murky and very difficult to understand. There are more arguments. There's more evidence of early authorship. Matthew, uh, uh, we talked about the temple tax, but Matthew is a Jewish gospel. And if Matthew's being written after the destruction of Jerusalem... The rabbis gathered together in Yamna, Yamnia, after the destruction of Jerusalem, and over the next 10 to 20 years put together the benedictions, the prayers, discussing how Judaism would continue without a temple system and temple sacrifice. And by 80 AD, they had put in there the curse against a Christian, saying a Christian could no longer be a Jew. Now, if... The Jews are no longer affiliated closely with the Christians. Why is Matthew writing such a Jewish gospel? Look at it in some more detail. Look at, for example, the way Matthew uses the term Jews and the term Israel. I got some statistics for you. Matthew uses the word Jews five times. Uses the word Israel twelve. John admittedly written probably in the 90s, after the fall of Jerusalem. John uses the term Jews 65 times. Israel, 4. You see that flip-flop? Do you know why? Before the fall of Israel, before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the terminology among the pagans would be to call Israelites Jews. But the Israelites called themselves Israelites. It's only after the fall, we see it with Josephus who wrote in 90 AD, we see it with others, it's only after the fall in 70 AD of Jerusalem that the term Jew starts to be used for the ethnic people, by the ethnic people. If we look, for example, a great way to look at this is Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, look what we have here. In Matthew 27, Jesus goes before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate says to Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? See, to Pilate, Israelites are Jews. Okay? So, Jesus continues this story and 
the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him, stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, a crown of thorns on his head, a reed in his right hand, kneeling before him. They mocked him. And the soldiers of the governor mock him, king of the Jews. They call him a Jew. He gets crucified. When he's crucified, the Romans put the charge against him, which read, Jesus, King of the Jews. That's what those outside of Israel, the Goyim, the pagans, the Romans, called the Israelites. They called them Jews from Judah. But before the fall of the temple... That's not the word typically used by the Israelites. Verse 41. Here we have the chief priests who are Israelites. Here we have scribes and elders mocking Jesus. What do they mock him? They say he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. See, they say king of Israel. They don't say king of the Jews, which is on the placard. They don't say king of the Jews, which the soldiers said. They don't say king of the Jews, which Pilate said. Because he's the king of Israel. They're Israelites. And that's the way Matthew writes. Matthew writes with a sensitivity to these issues. There's only one time where Matthew calls the Israelites Jews. And that's in a point for home. Let's keep going. I'm going too slow. Look at this. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Jesus, this is not a, a gospel written after the Jews have been annihilated with a hatred for the Jews. If this is not something made up to push that agenda... This is a very Jewish gospel. Jesus was not the start of a new religion. In Matthew, Jesus is the culmination of a religion. He's the culmination of the story. He is the proper road going from this point forward for every faithful Israelite. And those that deviate and do not come to faith in Jesus have deviated from the proper road. Now, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Savior for all the world. But He is the fulfillment of Judaism. He's the correct road for every Jew. Just as He is for the Gentiles. And that's the way Matthew teaches it. Matthew is not written as some gospel that denigrates the Jewish faith. Not at all. So who wrote Matthew? I can't answer this for certain. There are a lot of people who are good, firm, Bible-believing scholars who say we just don't know, but it has the, the authority of the church and it's very clearly written at an early time and so let's accept it on that basis. And I'm fine with that if that's where you are. But I got to tell you, I think more likely than not, Matthew wrote Matthew. Let me give you the reasons why. The chiseler will say, well, it doesn't say in there that Matthew wrote it. Oh, it's got a title that says according to Matthew, but the title was not originally in the document. 
And it's very clear that Matthew copies Mark on places. And so the chiseler will say, why would Matthew, a full-blooded apostle, copy the gospel of someone who wasn't? Those are the chiseler's arguments. I would give some quick responses right now. First of all, it's typical in literature of that day and in writings like this that you don't have a name of who wrote it in there. They didn't have copyright laws. You don't have the name. The name would go on the title. The author's name, don't expect... It's different than Paul's letters where Paul's writing a letter. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Grace and peace to you. A letter was very different than a narrative, a biography, a book. They didn't put the name of the author in the book. They put it on a title. So get rid of that and let's just look at the title. The title may not be original, but here's what we can say about the title. That title came on very, very, very early. Our earliest manuscripts of Matthew have the title. We don't have any Gospel of Matthew with a different title, not one. And you can bet if that title wasn't on there early and that gospel had been copied and floated around, there would have been other titles put on it. Oh, this is the gospel according to Peter. No, this is the gospel according to to James. This is the gospel according to John. But it wasn't. There's only one title for all of history that we ever find with the gospel of Matthew, and that is according to Matthew. Now, question. Whoever put that title on there, do you really think they were liars? I mean, you've got to figure if they put the title on there, they care about the book. They're believers. It takes a pretty gutsy guy or gal to put a title on there that you know is a lie on a book where Jesus says, you better not tell a lie or you're going to hell. Your righteousness better exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Don't take an oath. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. All of that's in Matthew. Do you really think someone who believes that's going to just say, hey, nobody looking, according to Matthew. Oh, we're going to fool them for 2,000 years. I mean, what, what, what common sense tells you? This title's on there almost immediately, if not immediately. Do you really think like a magician, hocus pocus, the early church is going to be that fooled? Oh man, so Matthew wrote that. I never knew that. People are still alive who were alive for the death of Jesus when this was written, when the title was put on it. Do you really think you're going to fool the early church? And if you're going to make up a name to make it authoritative, why are you going to make up Matthew? Why not make it Peter, John, James, Philip, one of those famous guys? Matthew's not famous, except for his gospel. That title's pretty significant. Now, what about Matthew relying on Mark? Mark wrote Peter's gospel. There's nothing wrong. You know, that... This one argument by this German theologian, who's one of the most profound theologians of the 20th century, one of the best New Testament scholars, blah, 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 blah. He says, this alone tells us Matthew didn't wrote it. It is inconceivable 
that Matthew, a full-blooded apostle, would ever be found quoting or following the structure of Mark. And I'm thinking, well, only if you're real arrogant. But I would think an apostle, especially by this point in their life, has learned the humility of if someone else has done something that's good, it's okay to, to use it. It's okay to plunder the Egyptians and take what's valuable from them. If Mark has recorded Peter's gospel, and he's recorded it the way Peter preached it, there's nothing wrong with Matthew borrowing sections of it where it meets his purpose in writing. That's the way they wrote anyway. Matthew's not going to avoid it simply because Mark transcribed Peter's gospel, and I'm better than Mark. That's a ridiculous argument to me. So the chiseler doesn't really have anything. So what do we look at internally? It's interesting. Matthew is pro-Israel even as he's anti-Jew. He's anti-people who refuse Jesus. But he is pro-Israel. Matthew. Levi. The tax collector. He's from the tribe of Levi, the Levitical priesthood. This is a man who was probably destined for priesthood, but turned aside and became a tax collector instead. He would have been steeped in tradition. He would have understood Jewish scriptures. But as a tax collector, he wrote notes for a living. Receipts, inventories, records. Had to file his reports with Rome. He was a tax collector on goods that were coming on the highway between the Greek cities of the Decapolis and the coast. He's a note taker. Jesus calls him. Isaiah had a note taker. Jeremiah had a note taker. Why wouldn't Jesus have a note taker? Why wouldn't Jesus have among his apostolic band someone who's able, you know, each Sunday... I've got to get caught up. What happened this week? Who makes notes for a living. Who comes from Capernaum, which is a key city that understands Aramaic, understands Greek, and understands Hebrew. He would have had dexterity with all three languages. Not only that, if you read Matthew, Matthew's got all these insertions about money matters that the other Gospels don't have. Like whoever wrote it's really tuned into money and taxes. The drachma story of the temple tax. And then Matthew's mother Mary is there witnessing the death of Christ and the resurrection empty tomb. And Matthew's got a passion story that's not recorded in Luke and that's not recorded in Mark. That is unique to Matthew whose mother saw it firsthand. There are lots of reasons to think it including the early church. Papias wrote around 120 to 130 A.D. that Matthew originally wrote his gospel in Aramaic, that it had been translated as people would. Now, it's not the gospel of Matthew in Aramaic. I think those were his notes. He was keeping notes in Aramaic. And people had translated them. But Matthew certainly fit to take his notes to take Mark's gospel and Mark's translation of Peter's gospel and put it all together into a gospel. It makes sense to me. We don't have time for the amen passage. Sorry. So, points for home. Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Jesus is not the, the midway point. 
Jesus is the destination. He's the destination for Judaism. And he's the destination for every one of us. We don't say Jesus come into my life. And take this road I'm taking. We say Jesus come into my life. And may I join you on your road. I want my faith to be your faith. I want what's important to you to be what's important to me. I want your values to be my values. It's not all about me. It's all about you. Jesus is the destination. They took the money. They did as they were directed. And this story's been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the one passage where Matthew uses Jews to talk about the Israelites. But he's not talking about all of the Israelites. Just the general public. Just the people that need to understand the faith of Jesus. He's speaking here about the chief priests who took money and bought off the soldiers who guarded the empty tomb. And that's the only time Matthew will call an Israelite a Jew. The pejorative word. The denigrating word. And that's not denigrating today, as I say. We even use Jew today. Post-70, everybody uses it. But in that time, Matthew used it because he was drawing a distinction between those Israelites who had a possibility of coming to faith in Jesus and those who just flat refused. Who knew the resurrection and lied to cover it up and bought people off. That's the only time Matthew uses it. The resurrection is the key. And for Matthew, if you don't have that resurrection and someone's tampering with the resurrection and someone's denying the resurrection, anathema. Curse. Same thing Paul said in Galatians 1. If any man preaches to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. Anathema. Because the resurrection is not only the key, it's our key. My friends, if we don't have a resurrected Jesus, we are all Wasting our time. But if we do, and because we do, and because we have an authentic record of eyewitnesses written at a time where eyewitnesses were still alive, praise God. Because this is the same Jesus who said to Matthew, to Levi the tax collector, follow me. Because he chose someone who could take notes, whose notes could be used, whose notes could composite into Gospels. The stories would not be lost. The stories would not be tainted or diminished by age. The stories would not be made up. They would be authentic records of actual historical events that would sustain the church. As we hear the daily call of Jesus Christ. Because that's what we have. We have an authentic call of Jesus. Maybe not the most inspirational class we've had. But one I thought important to teach. Because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But I know about it. Because it's in an authentic divine revelation from God. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for speaking to us. Speaking to us objectively in Scripture and within our hearts through the Spirit. Please strengthen those whose faith is challenged by the enemy and by the demons of this world. 
touch them. Ring true to not just their heart, but to their mind. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.